30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan and this is our bonus episode about the Sterling Affairs, our latest season reported by Ramona Shelburne over the course of, well, Ramona, who's sitting here with me, is reporting this since the moment it broke, working with us for a year and a half or so to put this all together. Hopefully people who are listening to this have already listened to the series. I think if you haven't, you should stop go back, actually listen to the series, and then come back to this bonus episode. But this is our chance to talk a little bit about the behind the scenes, how it came together. We've been getting a lot of questions since it came out. Shout out to all the people who binged it in like the first 24 hours. Gold star to you. But anyway, Ramona, hello and congratulations on this series. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's interesting. People keep asking me like, so why did you do this as a podcast, right? Why are there only five episodes? We want more. Um, And it's interesting interesting because I feel like this is sort of like this endless story where you have these favorite characters that you could do a whole podcast on just themselves, right? Like there's totally. so many, there's so many, like I could do a whole podcast on V. Stiviano. Yeah. I could do a whole podcast on Shelly or on Donald Sterling or on Doc Rivers, right? Steve Ballmer. Like there's, there's so many fascinating characters in this story that, you know, I know, having been behind the curtain now on the creative process with 30 for 30, how much um, goes into writing this, scripting this, editing this, mixing it, all of it. And like, I mean, there are more interviews that get left on the cutting room floor that never see the light of day that than interviews that actually make the podcast. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and this is our chance to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, on this notion of what's in the story, what's not you know, you could be doing, ra- there's all sorts of rabbit holes. Oh, yeah. And a big part of this process, this is the second time we've done a sort of big series like this. We knew from the beginning that this was a story that merited five episodes, a multi-part approach. But, you know, a big part of it is figuring out what's in, what's out. We were lucky enough to have Julia Lowry Henderson, who worked on this Bikram series that we did and reported that out. She was a huge part of this as well. And so, you know, we're starting to get our sea legs a little bit in terms of understanding what a five-part series is, what an arc is over the course of those five parts, what those rabbit holes are. So it's just been fun to kind of think through this stuff. Uh, when you have a story that's this deep. So to that end, we, we, we do these bonus episodes. And the first question we always ask is, what is a piece of tape that you love that got left on the cutting room floor? Because inevitably, you have to kill your darlings, as they say. Some great tape has to not make it in. So anything you want to shout out? Can I shout out like five things? <laughs> <laughs> how, how long do we have? Um, there's, a few, there's a few interviews that we did. I personally, I've been advocating for um, Ralph Lawler to be like his own little 10 minute bonus. So Clippers announcer, former, I guess, as of this year. Clippers announcer, Ralph Lawler. He had so many amazing stories of just the rise and fall of Donald Sterling because he was with him in San Diego when he bought the team. And I remember Ralph talking about this and it just made me want to know so much more. But when he, when he, was talking about Donald, like in San Diego, he said they were just Donald and Shelly. They were like a nice couple that they knew. And as they started to move to Los Angeles, 
it became Mr. Sterling and Mrs. Sterling, right? And Shelley. And it was his his talk about the transformation of Donald just as a person. He has this amazing story of how he would he flexed telling everyone how rich he was. We're we're sitting in a bar, Major Goolsby, across from the old arena in Milwaukee. Don, Don Casey was our head coach, so this is late 80s. And he turned to Casey, who he hardly knew, though he was the head coach. He said, do you know I'm the richest person you've ever met? And we all just kind of sat there. We're like, what? I mean, what's that got to do with anything? That was like a calling card of his. The stories that Ralph has at the, at the white parties. and just. Yeah. But I think what was so compelling about Ralph was he was literally the voice of the team whose own personal feelings and voice had been muzzled for all those years because he worked for the team. I wanted more Ralph, uh, more, <laughs> more Ralph, okay? Um, but the well, one well, guy... Well, well, can I say one yeah. thing about Ralph, which is, A, I'll point yeah. out for listeners, uh, he came, we got him fairly late. Oh, it was a real was late act. And it's a lesson in, if there's someone who you want to get, still go. He and Doc came through pretty late and we found a way to work them yeah. in and I think it was worth it. I will say Ralph, no surprise, great talker, right? But gave one of my favorite pieces of, of, of tape yeah. just just a, a moment i really love where he talks about it after the tapes came out it being a roller coaster i may have handled it as poorly as anybody because i'd i'd been around for so long 35 years in or something or other and it just really rocked me it, it was an emotional roller coaster but it was all downhill you never thought you're going to get to get back to the top again it was just this great turn of phrase and just helped me sort of really understand yeah. what it was like to be in that moment. But you were about to shout out someone else. Yeah. So um, the other part was um, there's a character. <laughs> he is a hell of a character. His name is John Rockwell. John Rockwell. And I knew Jerry back before he bought the Lakers. How would we describe John Rockwell? He came to Los Angeles as a poor kid who just wanted to be an actor and he has this sort of like oh I just walked onto the movie set and uh, Sophia Loren saw me and thought I was cool and then all of a sudden she offered me a part in a movie and then he has this incredibly wild story about saving Hugh Hefner's life when he was a lifeguard at the Beverly Hills Hotel and he couldn't swim and he ended up going into the deep end I had to jump in after him and they people used to say, well, you saved his life, you saved mine. We became friends, and then I lived at the Playboy Mansion off and on for 10 years. And this is like height of the 70s, this sort of showtime 70s into 80s era. John John really sort of encapsulates a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, he was Jerry Buss's wingman, okay? Um, and he, he, he seems to have started some of the Playboy Mansion culture. They would have a thousand girls come in to test for Playmate of the Year. A lot of girls coming to test. And I used to help Hef pick in the girls. That sounds like a rough job. It was one of the easiest jobs ever. <laughs> you know, it seems like every powerful man in town who wanted to go to the Playboy Mansion, it was like, it was almost like John controlled the list. It's like a character from Boogie Nights or something, yeah, right? I mean, he really right. is. That's right. That LA and, kind of. Um, you know, he just seems like the ultimate wingman. What was it like when you went Jerry Buss to Playboy Mansion the first time? He said, John, this is unbelievable. I feel like a kid in a candy store. (laughs) I said, yes, okay. There was something about this culture in L.A. especially, this Playboy Mansion kind of culture, um, where 
these rich guys like flaunted it. Like it wasn't hidden. It wasn't a secret. If anything, it was something to aspire to, to be like Hugh Hefner, to be like Jerry Buss. And I remember a lot of our editorial calls, I would say like, yeah, Donald has all these mistresses and he's controlling and he doesn't treat them well. And I don't like that. But Jerry Buss has a lot of younger women too. And I don't want to just excuse that because, or, or, or just give him a pass and say, that's cool because he treated them nicer or because his team won. Okay. Maybe. And like, let's examine that culture, that womanizing culture. And there was something like, there was an honesty about how Jerry Buss went about his affairs with younger women. Like he, he got a divorce from his wife. He didn't, it wasn't like hidden. It wasn't something that um, he was ashamed of. And if anything, he flaunted it. And that's a huge part of what we explore here is, you know, kind of the Jerry Buss versus Donald Sterling dynamic and the fact that people wanted to be around Jerry mm-hmm. and Donald noticed that and, could, and you know, in many ways, yeah could never understand why people didn't want to be around him and basically decided that he was going to in some way buy respect. And that, of course, always backfires because it makes you look more desperate and awful in addition to all the awful things uh, that we learn about Donald Sterling. I want to go through a a few of the things that we learn in this story. And also maybe just since it's been a a little over a week since this came out, like what are you noticing from people in terms of tidbits that they are learning because i think there's even like hardcore la basketball fans who are learning a few things and saying whoa i didn't know that and i have my hit list that i learned as we were making this uh but i'm curious to see what so i don't think people i definitely don't think people knew um the whole story of how donald helped jerry by the lakers that that's a revelatory piece of tape um and i definitely think that people are shocked and appalled by the locker room stuff yeah. By the uncomfortable Donald Sterling locker room stuff where he's basically, uh, you know, ogling his players and bringing in his friends into the locker room saying, ooh, look at their muscles. Right? And like in that's, particular, there's that tape from Old and Paul oh, Nice, which is just jaw dropping. Yeah. It stops you in your track. So I put my hand out, shake his hand. His friends shake their hands. How y'all doing? He goes right back. Wow. Look at these muscles. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like, what the fuck is going on here? So I'm sitting there. Now I'm starting to sweat a little bit because I'm like, nobody's in here. There's a reason why they left. And it's like, damn, he just kept looking at it. He's like, wow, look at this buck. Now, when he said that, that's when I, oh, shit. I'm like, buck? I was like, what the fuck? Black slave on the trading block. Yes. I'm telling you, that's when I was like, holy shit, that fucked me up. And I think there is, Shelly is a really complicated character. And there are people who will listen to the podcast and come away feeling like, damn, that girl, you know, Shelly Sterling, man, she was, she might've been more ruthless than her husband. Right. And there are people who will listen to the podcast and say, um, you're too soft on Shelly that you should have put her feet to the fire or raked her over the coals too. She's just as bad as Donald. Um, and I, I get all of that. Um, and it was something we debated a lot, like in the Absolutely. way we would talk about her. And it's, it's like one of those things where she's such a fascinating character that my only way of presenting her was you put it all out there and you let the audience decide. And I, you know, we we bring up her role and her complicity, her absolute complicity in the rise of Donald and the business practices that they employed with their real estate company for all those years. 
we bring that up. We play the tape of her posing as the health inspector. You said you're Miss Shelby from the health department? Yes, sir. Okay. We allow her to answer for herself. She gives an explanation for it. In a way that I will say, at least to me, comes off as really bad, you know, and sort of incriminating in the in her sort of, you know, defense of that moment. I was so scared of this man. So I didn't even hear pretty much what he said because he had a big, huge dog and he he opened his door and I was scared. But I said, yes, yes, whatever. And he was a hoarder. I mean, it was bad. And we had to get rid of him because the inspector had gone in and he put a jacuzzi there and it was illegally wired. So I had to ha- cite him. And um, so that's why he was really upset with me. Now, when it came out later, it made that story didn't make you look good, right? Did None you- of them did. To, to echo what you were saying, our philosophy was, we have this person in front of us. She's complex. We're going to try and present her and let people yeah. kind of come to understand uh, her complicity and all these things we're discussing. Yeah, so to me, she's like complicit. And this is always how I saw her. She was knowingly complicit. If anything, she may have been behind quite a bit more of some of the boots on the ground part of this discrimination because she's the one who services the apartment building. She's the one who goes, yeah. you know, to all the different tenants and she has files in the back of her car. I mean, everybody would always describe her as like, she has all the files in the back of her car. And she is named down. in lawsuits, right? And yeah. she's pointed out as, yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of these lawsuits are complicated because they don't, um, they settle the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So there's not an, and there was part of the settlement is there's not an admission of guilt. Um, and so the only thing I feel like you can do is just like say, this is what's alleged. And this is what she says about it. But I do think, you know, with audio, yeah. um, so much of what I feel like I learn about Shelley and so much of yeah. her complexity, but also her complicity is in the actual quality of the tape. And yeah. I think Shelley is one of those characters who I feel like I learn more about her in the way she pauses between sentences, yeah. the tone of her voice, the way the way that she corrects you. Um, about it being $2 billion, yeah, yeah. not dollars. Yeah, I had originally told my attorney what I wanted, 1.6 to 2.0. Billion? Um, yeah, billion. <laughs> not dollars. <laughs> to me, you know, that comes off as like kind of icky, right? But to other people, it's charming or whatever. But that's the beauty of audio and having someone yeah. and living with someone over five episodes. You know, those pauses are huge. Um, I mean, she even echoes Donald's phrase and says, I'm not a racist. I felt that I'm not a racist, and we never were a racist, and I wanted to show the people I'm not afraid of anybody, and I have nothing to fear. And to me, just hearing her say that, trusting that people are going to hear that echo to Donald, know how false it is coming out of Donald's mouth, be forced to think about it and reckon with Shelley, you know, that's a big part of our goal here is to try and flesh these characters out. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, we like characters who are complicated and we like giving them time. Donald in many ways is not. And it's a, it was an interesting editorial challenge for us when you have Donald Sterling, who's in a sense your central character, and he's kind of like doesn't change over the course of time mm-hmm. that much. He's like bad person and then he ends at bad person. Whereas Shelley goes through a journey. We have her tape. We hear her. We hear that complexity. So, you know, we, we made an effort to really – flesh her out so that when you get to episode five and you hear all the things that she does, it makes you feel lots of different conflicting feelings so, about her. That's right. It's like she, you keep rationalizing with her like, Shelly, why? You had this perfectly scripted ending. Like you broke with your husband. You kicked him out. 
You sold the team out from under him. You decried his racism. You said it was awful and horrible. If she just ends right there, it's a nice, clean story arc. Except that she doesn't. And everybody who knows the Sterlings says, who really knows the Sterlings, says they actually have gone through breakups and like this several times over yeah. the years that this is their pattern and these knockdown drag out things where like you know for a while they're together for a while they're separate then they get back together you know it's like this is way more of a pattern for them over the course of their lives than any of us realize or would care would really want to think too deeply about and i think um with shelly it's you just have to present all the ways she contradicts herself all the ways she's frustrating all the ways you're like dude just just say i should be mad at donald he's the one having these affairs yeah. he's the one who keeps doing it but instead she continues to make excuses for him or I, go after the mistress i mean that's one of the more fascinating mistress. things to me is talk about yeah. patterns with her that you know frankly i think are sort of an indictment is that time and time again she looks at her husband yeah. and a mistress and says hmm which one am i going to take legal action against the mistress, you know, and and we see that pattern with Castro. We see that pattern with yeah. Stiviano. And I think it says a lot about the moral, you know, I'll put it bluntly, the moral calculus that yeah. Shelley makes uh, along the way. So this is how I have learned to think about her. Um, I think when you make compromises in your life or in your marriage, the first time you do it, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. The first time you get over something that you know is wrong it's like it really hurts and the second time you get over that same thing it hurts less and the third and the fourth and the fifth time it's like it just gets you get a little numb to it and she has this answer when we're talking to her about i'm pretty good at knowing how to make myself happy i'm pretty good at being happy and i think what she's saying there in her very shelly kind of way is I've just learned how to live with this. I've just learned how I've made this choice, this compromise about my marriage of this is what it is. This is who he is. Do I do I want to continue to live in this marriage with this person? There's a financial element too, though, as well. Yes, but I think it's more than that. I think it's like she they could get divorced and she would still be fabulously wealthy. I think there's something about being mrs sterling Hmm. i think there's something about the role and it's not just like like if they got divorced i mean she controls the family trust now yeah i mean she has all the power this is her business now um but even over the years i feel like she had to choose like do i want to be one of those divorced ladies you know after my husband had a something like this or do I want to just live in this marriage and continue to to deal with it can can I continue to deal with it do you want to be that wife who stands by and you know you you kind of sit there and take it or do you want to get divorced and then what happens to your life after that the social status of that and there's some of the divorced women there carry on as if nothing happened if anything they they embrace being the divorcee the avenging angel and others um fade out of the spotlight and and, and I don't think Shelly wants that. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about what people are reacting to, some of the interviews that you didn't get. Yeah. Uh, and we've gotten a few questions as well from folks, so we'll try and rip through those. But we'll be back in a second. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. If you're ever in a crash and you're in an OnStar-equipped vehicle, you have specially trained advisors ready to help. OnStar advisors can connect to your vehicle and get you the help you need, even if you can't ask for it yourself. 
Because when the unexpected happens, the last thing you want to be is alone. OnStar. Be safe out there. Requires an OnStar plan, working electrical system, cell reception, and GPS signal. OnStar links to emergency services. Details and limitations at OnStar.com. 30 for 30 podcasts is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. All right, we're back, and um, let's move on a little bit from Shelley and get back to some of the tape that I think surprised people uh, the most or that people are reacting to. And actually, actually, I'm going to throw out one that is about Shelley because I'm okay. surprised that people are not reacting to this because to me, it's it was it's on my top list of like, oh my, but it's the fact that Shelley still listens to those tapes. Oh my God. And, you know, I will confess that in, in my editorial role on this, I was really pushing like, this is a moment we have to build to, we have to build to. It's a holy, holy shit moment. Um, people are noticing it, but it's not on the like top buzzy things that I feel like people are reacting to. To me, that is mind blowing that Shelly Sterling gets in her car to this day, puts on the tapes of her and of her husband and Vista Viana talking and listens to them on repeat. I mean, talk about a sort of psychological <laughs> landmine, goldmine, whatever you want to call it. Totally. Um, when did you learn that? And, you know, briefly, what was like your reaction to that? I actually knew that going into the interview because one of the things that Shelly is really proud of is that she is the one who found the part of the tapes that prove Vis Diviano and Donald Sterling were conspiring to hide some of the gifts from her. We should have put it under Lucy's name. She doesn't owe anyone anything. No one knows who Lucy is. But it's okay. We can. Has, has, the, has the escrow closed? Yes. It's been recorded. Mm hmm. And it's recorded, huh? Mm-hmm. I can always change title. You can always what? I can always change title whenever. And that was really key to the lawsuit she has against V. Stiviano, right. where she's trying to recover the gifts Donald had given her as community property. But Shelley Sterling is the one who spent hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours, listening to those tapes as she drove in the car to find evidence, to find the smoking gun on, in that trial. And the fact that she still listens to them is like, it was staggering to me when I heard it. She had admitted it to me um, a few times, just like in off the record conversations we were having, just like in, when you're setting things up like this. But I, I just needed to get her to explain it. Yeah. Because sometimes you know something going into an interview um, and you have to get them to say it themselves. Totally. And then you have to get them to explain it. I think I pushed her on this and delved into this like many, many times because it's like, as you say, a psychological landmine. So like you don't just ask them once. You have to sure. like keep probing and probing and probing. And so like 
but you're on dangerous ground, right? Because every time you go in there, like you could go so far that they get up and walk out of the interview. Um, let me rattle off a few other kind of tidbits yeah. that both caught my eye, but I'm also noticing are catching people's eyes. And then you can yeah. jump in on any of them you want to flesh sure. out. But let me, here's, here's my hit list. People are noticing the moment where Donald Sterling tells Steve Ballmer that he doesn't know how to be a wealthy person, which that is kind of awesome. remarkable. Sterling starts laughing and he looks at him. He goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And Balmer looks at me and goes, what do you mean? He goes, why would anybody have $2 billion in cash? Like, you should invest the money or pay off your debt, right? But you'd be stupid to have that kind of cash. People, are, I think, are surprised. I certainly was at the extent of Donald Sterling's properties. Basically, if you lived on the west side of L.A. Yeah. in the 80s and 90s, you Good chance you lived in a Sterling building. One of my favorite tidbits, that TMZ, pretty journalistically responsible. They get those tapes. Yeah. They call the league. They call the, you know, they go through their, their due diligence. That was surprising to me to learn from TMZ that they are kind of like a responsible journalistic organization, at least when they have something this explosive on their hands. Um, certainly the magic stuff, the like magic as Donald's rosebud kind of thing <laughs> is pretty amazing. That's good. Um, and then the one I will point out and, and say, that you know we reached a moment where we knew like oh this has to be in this because it's just one of those moments from this saga that has to be in there is is this your handwriting so you know this moment that doesn't exist in audio but is this exchange between donald and his lawyer and i don't know if you want to go there but people are reacting to your reading of that moment donald's deposition was truly grotesque well i fool around sometimes i do he admitted When a girl seduces me and tells me all of these hot stories and dirty things and tells me how much she wants to suck on me and take my shoes off and licks my feet and touches me. When I'm in a limousine, she takes off all her clothes. And the limo driver says, what's going on? And she started sucking me on the way to Mr. Coon's house. And I thank her. I thank her for making me feel so good. Castro's attorney, Doug Bagby, had to interrupt him. Sir, the question was, is this your handwriting? How did you go about doing a dramatic reading of that? <laughs> well, do you think I did it good? I don't know. <laughs> do you think I did that well? Oh, well, can I confess that there were yep. a number of, ver- of versions of that? Right? Oh, yeah. A number of reads of that. It's so. not like I had to do it just once. Right. So, you know, we tried um, the really silly. We tried the super yeah. serious. I think we found the right balance, Right in between. But you tell me. Um, okay. So the way tracking goes when you do a podcast like this is we had like many, many tracking days. It was like marathon tracking days. Um, and Raina Kelly, who is like my like all, one of my all-time favorite editors and people and creative people to work with. And she's would, at the Undefeated, who were a huge undefeated. part of this as well. Um, she would fly out from Bristol and like sit with me in a booth at ESPN LA Radio. And we were there for like six or seven hours. And then one of my buddies at ESPN LA Radio, Adam Bronstein, was engineering. So it was just like us three. <laughs> we were there like on the weekends for like, you know, hours and hours just tracking. And I remember like... You know, you read this stuff and it's, I mean, it's like I'm talking about, I'm using the word suck in a very uncomfortable way. I'm talking about her, you know, a mistress giving him a blowjob and (laughs) that's like very uncomfortable for me to have to do. But I think like, you know, I'm looking at Raina and I'm looking at Adam as we're doing it and it's hard not to snicker as you read this. And so you have to just kind of like disassociate like you have to almost be like a method actor like I'm not trying to be like Donald Sterling but when when um, Julia and I were going through 
the research on this, one of the things that struck me about it is that Donald said all this stuff and it's lewd and nasty and um, uncomfortable to even read. But he said this in front of Castro. Like this is his deposition while she's in the room. And it's not just him saying it to show off and, and gloat. It's him saying it to humiliate her. And I had to keep that in my head as I was reading this because like that's so important to that piece of audio. Like it's, it's, that it's not it, it's about him humiliating her him controlling her him pushing Castro. like just imagine her sitting in the room listening sure. to him talk like that about her in front of other people Ugh. and then and then of course you get the lawyer's perfect retort oh. sir the question was is this your handwriting which i yeah. think i you know i will say actually it's the first time i sort of this is occurring to me that we do have a number of moments in here where we have lawyers doing what you think lawyers are really good at in court, which is just letting people hang themselves yeah. by their own rope. And that yeah. happened, happened, you know, Donald walks into a courtroom with plenty of rope. Yeah. And so I think lawyers do that. A um, number of people pointed out that, sir, is this your handwriting is the original? Sir, this is a Wendy's meme, yep. uh, which is nice. Um, but, you know, that's a moment we knew we had to get in there. Um, let me, we're going to get to some listener questions that have come in, <laughs> but I want to quickly um, run through a few names that are not in this and see if you have anything to say about because we obviously yeah. reached out to a bunch of folks. Yeah. So, you know, Donald V, Elgin Baylor. There's a number of people who are central David to Stern. this story. David Stern. Number of people who are central to this story who are not, don't have, we don't have interviews from. Um, anything you want to say about efforts yeah. to get them and why they're not in there? Um, well, I tried really hard on all of those. Um, v. Siviano, we've, re- you know, we, we, I think I asked her lawyer, Mac Nehare, like, five times i went multiple multiple times and he every time he said he would reach out to her and you know nothing would ever come of it and then i i went and found two or three of her friends and we would um ask them they said oh we'll ask her we'll ask her and um there was never like a good response i would direct message with her on instagram sometimes and like she didn't ever respond like she's i know that she saw it though because she would respond sometimes she would just say hi or something silly we went to like you know, at least three last known addresses of hers in Beverly Hills. I would ask paparazzi around town if they had seen her or knew where she was living. The best, um, a friend of hers um, told me that she may have moved back to Texas. Like, uh, but then there's Instagram live videos of her just driving around Los Angeles sometimes. Yeah. Like she, she clearly, she, she definitely knew about this. We never got like an official denial, but like I asked people who were in touch with her many times and I was in touch with her myself and like, I think that um, the story I have heard is that she had adopted, this is from her lawyer, is that she had adopted two kids and she just doesn't want them to be subject to Mm. any um, uh, celebrity or personal pressure or anything like that. And I think that's um, a big, a a big part of this. Like, I think she, she got her 15 minutes of fave and there was a cost for it and she doesn't want to continue paying that. Donald? Donald, we tried through his lawyers, through two of his lawyers, and through Shelley, obviously. Um, and there was a calculus, like I, you know, I thought about trying to doorstep him, like just knock on the door of their house in Beverly Hills. I drove by several times, thinking, like, should I just go up there? Um, and Shelley was really clear, and you know, if I would have done that, I felt like she would have gotten angry in the sense that she does control things. She's like, he's not well, like he's he's got a mental, you know. Obviously, he was declared mentally incapacitated. He has Alzheimer's um, or early onset Alzheimer's. And um, she didn't want him to be in any kind of condition. So I tried through multiple um, lawyers, 
known associates and then especially Shelly to get Donald to do this. We, we certainly tried many times over. And I think the pitch was pretty simple. Like, this is a story about you and your legacy. And if you want to have any say in it, now's the time. And that classic, this is coming out whether this, you participate or correct. not. Do you want to participate? You know, I will, you sort of hinted at it. Yeah. I will say we know that Donald is in deteriorated mental state. I don't know what tape from Donald would have sounded like, what answers he would have given. Yeah. But what question, what one question do you want to ask Donald? Uh, assuming you will get a good answer or, you know, a real answer, however you want to define that. What is the question you would want to ask Donald Sterling? Why are you so ashamed of your past? Like, I, I, that was the central thing for me of, like, there's a deep shame about where he came from, about his upbringing in East L.A. and identity as Donald Tokowitz. So I know that there was a, a nasty divorce between his 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 parents that seemed to split the family and seemed to change things pretty fundamentally. But I don't understand why he was ashamed of his past and then really spent the rest of his life trying to reinvent himself. And because I, I think the way he reinvents himself is like trying to force respect upon people, trying to force power, his power upon people. And usually the most... The, the most the biggest megalomaniacs or whatever you want to call him um the people who do that are actually the most insecure there's some kind of deep shame yeah. from his childhood and that's what i want to get to the bottom of uh we did get a question uh a listener question about elgin baylor uh both did we try and reach out to yeah. him but then also kind of like how you know i think the question was how big of a moment was that in this story this this break with elgin baylor and and kind of should we have seen everything in that? And why wasn't there action around that? So um, we tried with Elgin many times and he declined through, I think, his wife. Um, uh, it's, and, and we went back. Like anybody who declined, we would go back to. Sure. Like it was like, you, you know, you, you got a, a no or a, and then you ask again three, a few months later um, and they declined. I don't know um, if he's in the if he's in the right place in his own life and health and um, to, to do interviews like this. Um, I know that he certainly had many chances over the years to do a lot of interviews about this and he didn't. Yeah. So it's not just us that he's declined on. He hasn't done a lot of interviews ever since the, he lost the court case. Um, and it's frustrating because to me, it's like the one person who could probably expose the worst of the worst when it comes to Donald Sterling is Elgin Baylor. And you're like, come on, man. This mm. is like, say it, you know, expose it. You know, you probably know where all the all the icky stuff is um, and all the worst of it that we probably, you know, none of us have a have an understanding of the depths of it. Um, he is an important character in the history of the Clippers. Yes, because he was the longtime general manager of the Clippers. And, you know, Donald and Shelly kind of take shots at him sometimes like Shelly I think even took a shot at him in her the interview where she's like you know he wasn't very good at his job like they you know they they, right. they say it like as if it's his fault that Donald was so cheap or wasn't managed well I mean they do tend to get better after he's not the general manager anymore I don't want to say that means that he that you know he wasn't good I don't think Donald gave him much um, opportunity to succeed um, and so yeah he's a he's a frustrating um person that we didn't get but i don't i don't even know if it's just us because it's certainly he hasn't done all that many interviews about yeah. it ever since uh one other listener question was about 
owners. So we mm-hmm. do have a, a moment, and we explore a lot about how you know the power dynamics are in the league are that the owners are a small group of very wealthy, powerful men. The the league basically works for the owners. That's the central dynamic in many ways to the heart of the question that's at the center of this whole thing, which is why did did it take so long? But you know, we got a question from Leah uh, about other owners. If they know about Donald Sterling's behavior, how much did they really care? So um, I've talked to other owners about it, and they all kind of describe him as like this goofy old weird uncle, you know, who didn't really go to that many owners meetings towards the end of his career. Um, He would send Andy Roser instead. And I think that they're complicit in, you know, how he's able to exist for so long as well, because this is my suspicion that they didn't mind having a bad team in Los Angeles like the Clippers Hmm. were a sleeping giant and they're good now now that they have Steve Ballmer they're good and I think like the Clippers were like two easy wins when you go through LA like you have to play the Lakers and that's gonna be tough games but then you get the Clippers you get a couple wins but even Um, if you think of them as like that cynical calculating having such a bad apple as one of 32 that doesn't say like oh this might hurt my for put morality off to the side like this this might hurt my bottom line or something that that's not part of the calculus I think that they just they weren't a threat and I also think that um, there was real concern about the slippery slope even you know the Anderson Cooper interview is the final nail in the coffin for Donald right like like there's no coming back from that one but um, I also think there was like a lot of owners who realized that they don't live in glass houses right I mean they they, they, oh, they real, do live in they, glass they, houses yeah they do live in yeah. glass houses um, so I think there's a lot of owners that were worried about the precedent and the slippery slope of of this altogether like yeah he's he might have done worse things than they did but even like their worst thing would not compare to his worst thing but like their worst thing is not something they'd want anyone to know sure and of course the one owner we do hear about articulating that is Mark Cuban who has had a glass house situation of his own in his organization. And so I think you can sort of infer what you will there about Mark Cuban being wary of this slippery slope as, as you put it. Um, Okay, we're going to start to wrap up here. I will say that we're going to do another bonus episode in which we're going to talk about a bunch of other things as well. We'll get to, um, the other Donald that a lot of people are thinking yeah. about as they listen to this story about one Donald on the West Coast. Uh, certainly a lot of people are listening with an ear towards another Donald on the East Coast. We'll talk about some more tape that came into it and we will have a chance to answer some of your questions. So if you have more questions as this goes, um, you can email us 30 for 30 podcasts at ESPN.com. You can also tweet at us and we may do like Reddit AMAs or some stuff. You know, yeah. we're going to keep the conversation going because as you illustrate so, so well, like this is a story about the league right now and about a lot of big issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, the one thing I'll say, and then I'll let you have the final word, is that um, I think we have the longest credits in podcasting, but that's for a reason. We've shouted out a number of the people who went into making this here. Again, The Undefeated had a huge part in this, as did our production partners at Western Sound, in particular Ben Adair and Stephen Hoffman. But what I will encourage you to do is really go listen to the credits of the final episode. I know a lot of people drop off right when you hit the credits, yeah. but listen to those names, understand what it takes, and moreover, stick around because there is a great little piece of tape Ooh, after please. the credits. It's like a Marvel comic. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we Stay put for the in, Easter egg at the end. Yeah, we put in a little Easter egg to get you to listen to the credits, but mostly because we want to shout out all the amazing people who helped make this happen. Um, but Ramona, any final words before we say goodbye to the bonus episode number one? Um, yeah, I guess some final words. The uh, it's such a big, messy story, uh, but I really feel like every time I do an interview, I tell a different part of it, and that's what I love about this. Yeah. Um, 
some days I'm so focused on like what I've learned about Los Angeles, just uh, the city I grew up in, the city I live in, um, and how power works in LA. Like there's these, there's so many people in this story and in and around this world who their fundamental choice and question that they have in their lives and how they live them is what, what are you willing to do in order to be famous? What are you willing to trade? What are you, how far are you willing to go in order to be a celebrity, to feel that validation? And in some ways, Vis Diviano asked herself that question, how far am I willing to go? Donald Sterling asked himself that question. Mm-hmm. Shelley Sterling asked himself that, asked herself that question. The John Rockwells of the world who get to be the wingman, they get to like probably not sleep with the hottest girl because that gets the the rich guy gets the hottest girl right but he gets you know the second hottest girl and it's seen as cool when guys like john rockwell or jerry buss um get that kind of treatment you know get that you know like oh you're you're such a stud right um and the mistress in that equation the vistivianos of the world are seen as the gold digger or seen Mm. as the mistress or seen and it's you know it, it it always bothered me because i'm somebody who watched anna karenina and had a real like visceral reaction of like, why does Anna Karenina pay the price? But the guy she has the affair with, you know, gets to keep living his life. Um, when really everyone is just asking themselves the same question. How far are you willing to go to get that fame and fortune? And uh, as a woman, it always, that, that, that really stuck with me. And I think this whole series in a lot of ways is a meditation on that. All right. Ramona Shelburne, congratulations again. And thank you very much for doing this. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.